Well, hey, Discovery, it's been a pretty great last couple of months as we've gotten this fall kicked off. We've welcomed new people into our community. We've been doing those live gatherings, in-person gatherings at Bet Havram. James and Megan are here. There's been a lot of great wins in our church over these last eight or nine weeks. And yet, at the same time, we are still very much in a wilderness experience. When we started uh, the fall, our country had just hit 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus. Today, we're up to about 45,000 more. We still have no idea when our kids are going back to school or when UC Davis is going to be an open campus again. We're still sorting out this tumultuous election. Our country's deeply divided. California recovering from devastating wildfires. We are in a wilderness experience. And yes, there's been some great things, some good wins, and that's worth celebrating. But let's not forget that there's still a lot of other stuff going on. And in these wilderness moments, in these wilderness experiences, we ask some really big questions. We ask questions like, God, what are you doing? What's going on? Why are we here? And, and maybe even underneath some of those questions, does, does church, does the church even matter in these kinds of moments? But in the wilderness, I believe the church has an opportunity to be at its best. As we pray, as we serve, as we are broken and poured out for the good of our community, as we are present for one another as we walk through the wilderness together we tell a different story right we point to a different way there's a whole other thing going on in the midst of this this is how we are countercultural and this of course has been our conversation what we've been exploring for the last several weeks we started this in Ephesians chapter 2 this 3 week look at our identity, our countercultural identity because of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. And now the, the second part of this, the last three weeks, as we've been in Micah chapter six and specifically verse eight, we've been looking at, okay, if this is our identity, how then do we live this way? How do we live counterculturally? Micah six, eight, I think gives us a really concise, but, but big, right, task. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, personally, I've, I love this verse, but I've also uh, wrestled with it quite a bit. I've wondered about this verse and this pairing of really big ideas. Why justice, mercy, and humility? How do these big ideas work together? And why does it say this is what the Lord requires? That is a phrase that despite maybe what we might think in the sort of popular realm, that's not a phrase that is used often in scripture. In fact, this is kind of the only formulation of this sort of statement in the entire Bible. This is what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Now in our 
larger Protestant tradition, we put a lot of emphasis on grace. And rightfully so, that is a good thing. But grace, to quote Dallas Willard, is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Let me unpack this for just a moment. Okay, We don't earn anything by doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. But we put in the effort. Right? We put effort into those things, into this way of living, because living this way creates deep alignment with God and his character. And living in deep alignment with God produces joy. <laughs> Whether we are in a wilderness season or not, living in deep alignment with God produces joy. Now, as we've been unpacking this verse, we, we've seen that God is just. It's not just that God cares about justice, or that God likes it when we show mercy. We've learned that God himself is just and merciful. They're attributes of his character. This is who God is. He is just. He is merciful. And so we don't pursue justice and extend mercy because they are things that make God happy. We do those things because they are who God is. And again, we want to align our life with his abundant way of living. But then at the end of this verse comes this idea of humility. And it seems weird, right? It doesn't always seem to fit with these concepts of justice and, and mercy. And then as we've been looking at this and we've seen that God himself is just and merciful, it raises an interesting question. But then comes humility. And, and I don't know about you, but again, this one is kind of weird. Right? How does it fit with these big words, justice and, and mercy? And then the question behind that, does this word also describe God? Is humility one of his attributes, part of his character, just like justice and mercy? And then on our side, what does it mean for us to be humble? Is there anything more countercultural today than humility, than to walk humbly with our God. In Romans chapter 12, we looked at a portion of this chapter last week in our conversation on mercy. But right after that, it says this in Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. Romans 12, 3. Now for some of us, we may have some baggage, some spiritual baggage with this word humility. And this concept of being humble, it sometimes gets used in spiritually abusive environments as a way to try to keep people in check. There can be an emphasis or an overemphasis on how rotten and terrible you are. But humility is not about self-deprecation or even self-hatred. It's not pretending that we're just a bunch of screw-ups. Fundamentally, Humility is about living in the truth, living in reality. I think this is part of what's so refreshing about humility. When you meet a truly humble person, you have this sense of like, ooh, I want whatever they have. It's because they're living in truth. They're grounded in reality. It's also why humility is so radical in our cultural moment. Because we live in a world that's full of spin, full of unreality, full of facades that we put up, whether it's uh, 
public figures who, who craft storylines to put themselves in a better light, whether it's a filter that we put over our Instagram photos, whether it's a slight bending of the truth to help us feel better about ourselves, whether it's conspiracy theories or othering groups of people or numbing ourselves at the end of the day, we have so many ways of avoiding the truth, of living in unreality. Sin, we might say, is the active avoidance of what is real, the active avoidance of what is true. Now, the opposite of humility is pride, right? Pride, then, is the active acceptance of unreality, of a false narrative. That's why those words from Romans 12 are so helpful. Think of yourself with sober judgment. We like to use the word orthokresis around here a lot. If you're not familiar with this term, it, it, it breaks down literally to right judgment or right discernment. And so what the writer is talking about here in Romans 12 is about orthocreting your life, orthocreting your self, thinking not more highly, but also not more lowly than we ought. We may define humility this way. Humility is a right assessment of who we are in relationship to God and others. And this is how it fits into the bigger picture of Micah 6, 8. Everything in this verse, even though it uses that word requirement, everything in this verse is deeply relational. Justice is relational, not just legal. Mercy is relational, not just a nice feeling that we have about other people. And humility is not just a personal quality. It's about understanding our place within the shalom of God's creation. It's about living in right relationship with God and with other people and with this world that God has put us in because we have a right assessment of who we are in relationship to God and to others. Now, let's turn to one more uh, part of Scripture. This is Philippians chapter 2. This is another New Testament letter, very similar to that letter uh, from Ephesians that we looked at earlier this fall. Same writer, the writer Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And we'll pause there for a minute. Let me add sort of one more layer to our definition here. A prideful person takes up space. A prideful person takes up a lot of space. A humble person creates space. We asked earlier, is God humble? Okay, we've said God is just, God is merciful, but is he humble? And I think the answer to this question is yes. 
There are a couple of reasons for this, two reasons or evidences that I would give. And the first is God creates. God literally creates space for others, creates space for us. This God who exists as a community of perfect self-giving love, three persons in one being, this thing called the Trinity, did not hoard that to himself, but instead created, created space for others to enjoy that. There is a profound humility in that truth. And then Jesus, as we were just read in this passage, as the second person of that community called the Trinity says, I'm not gonna use this position to my own advantage. Think about that for a minute. That's crazy. That's so crazy. This God says, I'm not going to use the fact that I am God and that I can do whatever I want to my own advantage. Instead, I am going to love and serve and sacrifice for these people that I created and that I desire to be in relationship with. And then, on top of all of that, he invites us into this love to serve and to create space for others just as he has done so for us. You wanna be countercultural? Especially in our day and age, think about that phrase again. In your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be countercultural. Now, let's get practical here for just a moment. How can we practice Christ-like countercultural humility? I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest just five ways. This is far from comprehensive. Hopefully this is a springboard for you to use your imagination to think of more ways. One way we can practice this radical countercultural humility is to listen more. Obviously the corollary here is to talk less, but good listening is not just about being quiet. You, you can be quiet and still be completely checked out. Good listening is about being present. It is about asking good questions. It is about creating space for others. So we can listen more. Two, we can post less on social media. Not just post less, but comment less, scroll less, get into it less often with people in those spaces. Give more presence to what's going on in your real, actual life that's happening right in front of you. Three, serve your family, your household, your roommates, your coworkers, whatever community you choose, serve them in a hidden way. In a way that makes people go, hey, who, who cleaned up this room? Who did the dishes? Who took care of that task? Whatever you do, whatever kind of creative idea you have here, do it on the down low so that no one knows who did it. Fourth, practice the Sabbath. Now, of course, do your work. Humility is not about being lazy, but do your work and then let it go. And I think for us here in Davis, this is a big one, right? Because we can just keep working and working and working. Do your work and then let it go. Parents, disconnect from work to be with your kids. Students, take a break from that screen and go do something outside. Whatever it might be, remember the world's gonna keep turning. Your company will carry on. Your work will still be there when you get back. You don't hold it all together. And then last but not least, accept the gift of imperfection. 
I'm stealing this one from Brene Brown. But I think humility, part of, part of the art of humility is holding things loosely, realizing that our world, ourselves, we are imperfect. We, we can't do it all. We can't fix it all. We need help. This is about accepting the truth that we're never going to find the perfect system, the perfect theology, the perfect church, job, community, living situation, whatever it might be. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to settle for mediocre or that you should stay in something that is unhealthy or toxic, but imperfection is a gift in that it opens us up to God's work in our lives. It reminds us we need a savior. We cannot save ourselves. We need help and we need healing and we need restoration. Imperfection reminds us that we are not in control. We are not God. We need a savior. Now again, there's so many more ways to practice counterculture humility. So what is that for you? This week, how can you do this? What can you do to practice this kind of countercultural humility? Now, as we get ready for communion, I want to read a little bit more from that, that passage in Philippians chapter 2. Again, this is talking about Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. Beginning with that phrase, in your relationships, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, here's what it says, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And of course, this is what we remember. This is what we celebrate. This is what we reflect on every time we gather and we come around this table, this moment called communion. We remember that Jesus humbled himself, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And in doing so, right, in, in becoming obedient to death, he becomes our salvation. And this is such good news for us. Again, especially here in this place where we're achieving, we're accomplishing stuff, we wanna change the world. All of those impulses are good, and yet we need to be reminded every week we need a savior. We can't fix it ourselves. We can't do enough good things to make ourselves any better. Again, we put in the effort to do justice and to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, but we also need this reminder that we need a savior. That's why we come around this table, why we take this meal, this bread representing Jesus's body. Again, his humbled human body broken for us. And we take this cup representing his blood poured out for us. Jesus broken and poured out that we might have life, abundant life here and now, eternal life into the future. This is the good news that we celebrate this morning. When you're ready, wherever you are today, take your elements. Remember Jesus, his body broken and his blood poured out for you. Take and eat.